Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide, a CadSource production. In this episode, we discuss the life of a minor leaguer, business lessons from sports, and doing the work. This podcast exists in large part because of CadCM, the content marketing team inside CadSource Inc. So what does CadCM do? You know how many business leaders need help communicating their story? That's what we do. Content creation and content distribution for business leaders. This provides opportunities, relationships, and a platform for you and your business. Why do we do this? Because at CadCM, we exist to help entrepreneurs create and share amazing content. Learn more by visiting CadCM.com. Our guest today is Sean Farrell, CEO of Quality Data Systems and former minor league baseball player. Sean learned from a young age that if he was going to make it on the field, he had to get dirty. He has taken those same lessons from the ball field and applied them to the business world. Sean proves that if you put in the work, you can knock it out of the park. Let's get right into this chat with business leader, Sean Farrell. First, let's start with college athletics. So what was it like in season, out of season, having to juggle training, eating right, schoolwork, money, like what, what was your experience with all yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a lot more difficult than people realize. So, and out of season more so than in season. So, at least back when I was, so I was at Chapel Hill 2000 to 2003. When you weren't in season, you had no schedule prioritization. So, if you needed to take a class, like you didn't register before anyone else in your class. So, oh, really? you know, so it made it very difficult to pick classes because practices would normally, however many workouts we were allowed to have, I think we had to be done by like two o'clock. So one, one to one fifty was even the last class you could take and you'd have to be booking it to make it by a two o'clock practice. So, so you took eight hours of potential classes and squeeze them into five. So you, some classes you may have wanted to take in the fall, you couldn't. Mm -hmm. So you know, I did. I went to Charlotte here in Charlotte, and you know, did very well academically, and then quite honestly, struggled my first semester, which I think was a good wake up call. Um, I think I overburdened myself with course load first time being at college, and uh, certainly did very well after that. But that was that was a tough adjustment to balance having so much free time, having to balance practice with school and all that stuff. So it it definitely took some adjustment. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, right now, one of the biggest topics is paying college athletes. Do you have thoughts on that topic? I have a definite opinion on that topic. Um, I am very much against paying athletes in college. I think from where I come from, I was afforded a great opportunity to represent the university as we talk further I enjoyed college athletics a lot more than pro athletics because it's much more about the team and just enjoy that whole dynamic. So are there certain perks that would be nice? I would probably be open to like even just scheduling classes would be nice, but I do not agree with the whole everyone should get paid. And and there's a, you know, there's a whole merchandising component, which is an interesting Mm -hmm. debate. And yes, I understand the NCAA and the universities are making you know, millions, if not billions of dollars. Right. But at the end of the day, you're getting a, what should be a quality education. I don't remember the stats, but what, let's say 97% of student athletes don't end up going pro or making a living in their sport. So the the point of college athletics should be to get an education right. and, and play a sport. Yeah, no, I mean, you obviously did that well. I think another side to that too is the 
building of your own brand while you're, especially now with yeah. social media and with content creation with anything, because obviously we're, we're big on that as well. But if you're a football player, you're playing a game and you now make a big play, you're now gaining 5,000 followers within seconds on whatever social media channel you're in. That's different than from back then because that, that wasn't the case then because yeah. there wasn't Instagram, Facebook as much as it is. Thank God. Um, so yeah, so exactly. But it's also like it helps them monetize their brand without even knowing it. So that now, if they don't go pro, they have 50,000 followers here and someone can offer them a job. Someone can, they can be influencers. They can do other things that back then you couldn't do. So I don't know. I think a lot of it is allowing the athletes to just build their brand. Even if they don't monetize it while they're playing, they're going to be able to do it somehow afterwards. Much like you did with your education, it's the same thing. I mean, they're getting both. And and I would probably be less against monetizing the brand. And even if they set up almost their own business on the side, I'm I'm more direct against the university paying athletes as if they were pros to be an athlete. But if I want to set up a shop on the side because my brand carries weight... I think you run the risk like you can in professional sports of does that distract from the team's mission? Does you're representing the university? Does your personal brand conflict with the university's image? Are you going to put views out in the political sphere that may be against what the university you represent stands for? So I think there's that's a very much a gray area. But yeah, it's also I think it would be hard. It's going to be hard because there's going to come a point where odds are athletes are going to get paid somehow i believe but based on the way everything's going you know whether you're for or against it it seems like that's the route they're going to go eventually <laughs> um i just i'm interested to see how they end up doing it like do they go salary caps who gets paid what women athletics versus men athletics there's so much more to it that i don't think people are seeing like cuz now you you take the football team and you say all right you're a star quarterback, you're going to get paid a million dollars to play at USC, let's say. Okay, well, what about the women's cross-country team or the men's cross-country? However that is, it's, you know, do they do it revenue-based? Like, it's just all so deep that it's going to be interesting to see where they go. With It'll it. be interesting to see if we end up with three strata where you've got pro and almost this semi-pro blend of college, but it's the big time and people are getting paid. And then is there a a people that are playing because they love the sport and they can go to college. So not, not necessarily a D2 or D3 variant, but will there be a common like the big four and they run a different level and, di- and different monetization scheme than, right. than the rest of the conferences? Like I, I, you don't know. Like it's, that's a very interesting point. I, I do think that. insurance will play in. So as we've had some of the, you know, the, uh, the Duke guy, mm-hmm. Zion Williamson. Thank you. Yeah. You know, if he had broken his ankle and not been the first pick, you know, I, I do think there's an interesting private insurance component to that. And that's where if I can prove that I have a brand following, even though I haven't monetized that, hey, I've got, you know, a million mm-hmm. followers on mm-hmm. Instagram mm-hmm. and I'm projected to be this, can they have some sort of insurance backing to say if I'm representing the university and now my lively my future livelihood is shattered because I get in, you know. That to me is a much more interesting discussion because now we're talking long-term effects. Hey, I was going to earn twenty million dollars over my first five or ten seasons, and now you know I'm I'm done. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. That gets us to the next conversation of taking that transition to minor league baseball. So, did you did you get drafted? How did that process work? Yeah, so uh, 
I did get drafted my senior year. So as a as a baseball player, you you tend to have the most leverage after high school and after your junior year. So I was drafted in the 20th round. I had kind of injured my shoulder in my senior year diving for a ball. So I, I think I was projected to go eighth or ninth round and ended up getting 20th round. I got enough money to go on vacation for four days as a signing bonus. So it was kind of a, hey, welcome to the team kind of <laughs> signing bonus. So I was drafted. I went to play short season A ball about as far away from home. So I grew up in Charlotte, you know, since I was three years old. I got drafted by Oakland A's. I was part of the whole money ball scheme. So I walked a lot more than I struck out, you know, had the high on base percentage. I was a big RBI guy at the University of North Carolina and went to Vancouver. British Columbia was where the farm team was. So we played all throughout the Pacific Northwest. So that was a really cool experience. Like Vancouver was a super cool city. The temperature differences between the sides of the mountain and the Pacific Northwest. I mean, we'd play in 115 degrees in Yakima, Washington, and Eugene, Oregon would be 70. So it was just kind of a crazy climate change. But yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, one of the the big things you hear about minor league baseball in specific is that like we've talked to professional baseball players, triple A players, everyone in that level is that it is sort of grungy until you make it to triple A at least. And then the majors, the process of getting to games, staying, you know, all of it. <laughs> I'll have a funny story. For yeah. That. So yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is such a grind. And what makes it more a grind is how individualistic it is. So coming from a large D1 program, you get that rivalry sense like Clemson was a really big rival for us. That was kind of the you know, you had the perennial Florida State and Clemson that were kind of the top of the ACC food chain back when I was there. So you, you it was really about the win. When you go to minor league ball and as a hitter, it was, well, how many quality at bats did you have in that? What kind of pitches were you seeing? Are you progressing on this? Can you hit the ball the other way? Can you hit with wood with power to all parts of the field? So it was, it was so individual focused. We played 76 games in 79 days. The one of the three days off was the bus ride back from our furthest away trip, which was a 12 hour bus ride. So we left Boise, Idaho at 11 o'clock at night and got back to Vancouver at 1030 in the morning and enjoy the rest of your day off. So it is definitely a grind. Uh, I remember going to a place in Washington where the bus pulled up to the hotel. There was a Denny's and a Chinese buffet. We were there for five days and we were not allowed to take the bus out. So every pregame meal or postgame meal was either Chinese buffet or Denny's for five days. Wow. I bet I ate Denny's 200 times that, that summer. So yeah. not, not, to, not to be sponsored by Denny's, right. but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going back to Denny's probably ever again in my life yeah. after uh, three months of Denny's, you know, multiple times a week. Mm-hmm. How did the living situation work? Yeah. So again, we had a unique situation. So Vancouver, British Columbia, we had host families. We, we paid them to live there and they were set to provide, I think it was one meal a day. It may have been two. I can't remember now at this point. There was a 100-year record heat that summer. So being that far north, many of the homes did not have air conditioning because it's Canada. And we were seeing average temperatures in the 90s as opposed to the 70s. So 
being someone who likes to be cold when they sleep, my room at night was probably in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So that was, I looked forward to road trips because we'd yeah. stay at a hotel and actually have air conditioning. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that's crazy. And then, so did you hit a point, I know you had suffered, which we'll get into, a career ending injury, but did you hit a point where you were planning on climbing the ladder, doing whatever you can to make it to the majors? Yeah, so when, when I got drafted, I, I felt highly confident, and still to this day, I feel highly confident I would have made it to double A, which I think once you're in double A, you're primed to make the jump at any point. And then it's all, I want to say, organizational choreography of, is there going to be an opportunity at my position in my organization? Or do I need to learn a new position? Being someone who could always hit I was actually practicing to learn catching more, which I had caught some in high school and just here and there, but we were particularly weak at catching at that point in the A's organization. So saw that as a quick trip. I was leading the league and hitting after the first two weeks and thought I was going to get the call up. And Andre Ethier was our second rounder. So I played center, he played right, and uh, he did fairly well out of the start and uh, he got moved up instead. I'm going to say that was a great decision. He went on to be perennial (laughs) all-star making 18 million a year. And I decided to go into the family business and see how that goes. There you go. No, that, I mean, that's, that's what it takes sometimes. And then you hit, so you, you suffered this injury and then did you know that would be it? I didn't. So, you know, I kind of went there injured. They shut me down for a couple of weeks thinking it was bicep tendonitis. I came back after two or three weeks off. Arm had never felt better. I was thrown at 70 yards on a line. And then probably within a couple of days, still couldn't throw without pain. So really struggled through that season, came back home, had surgery the first week I was back. Uh, it was supposed to be like a, a six-week rehab, so plenty of time before spring training. I went through the rehab process, and I got to March and still was not throwing without pain. So at that point, I had I had joined my father's business. That was just to kind of make some money in the offseason because, as you mentioned earlier, there is no money in minor league baseball. I got paid $700 a month gross. I had to pay half of that to my host family, so I earned about $2.11 an hour as a minor league baseball player. So yeah, I I really decided I didn't want to start a 144-game season at 80% healthy. So I I had found kind of a lot of the passions from athletics and and found that passion in in the business world. And and that kind of led the transition to maybe sports isn't where I need to go from here. Right. No, that's that's interesting what you just said too, because we hear that a lot too with former athletes or with anyone it's if you have the competition, the competitive drive, right? The, the spirit and, you know, being a part of a team and something bigger with a bigger goal that translates to business pretty well from what we've seen talking to other athletes, talking to former athletes. So did you now just, you join the family business and you've been running with it since? Yeah. So, uh, it was 2003. So it's been 16 years now, literally started at the ground, like never thought I would go into the family business, you know, would hear about it a lot at the at the dinner table. Uh, my dad did a great job building a foundation and just fell in love with sales. So as we that, talking about that competitive spirit, I started as a straight commission salesperson, like got to make it happen, was trying to make some money in the off season while I was rehabbing, had a lot of success, was really able to grow the business. And then slowly kind of as, as I knew I wasn't going to go back to sports, like continue to progress. We got more organized in our responsibilities continued to grow the business. And I think it was 2000, 
11 or 12, was named our CEO. My father's still very involved in the business at 70 years old. A lot of families can't make that work. Mm -hmm. So as a second generation, I've enjoyed that striving and desire to grow uh, while building on the foundation that he's built. So it's really been we really work well together and I've certainly heard the horror stories of, of the other side when some family members just yeah. shouldn't be in business together. No, I, yeah, I've, I've heard of those too. But so what direct, I want to say analogies, because we're big on sports and business analogies, did playing, whether it's college baseball, minor league baseball, or just sports in general, appeal to you in the business world? I think some of the biggest lessons I took away. So again, I, I guess just going back to heritage, right? So i I was playing baseball at Charlotte Latin. It was always, well, that's just a private school. Like that kid can't play with the kids from Providence High School and South Mech. So then I would see those guys in the summer because I would play Legion ball and then I would lead that team. And then, oh, well, a private school kid probably isn't going to go play Division One. I. I, I had talked to UNCC and just happened to get the call from Coach Fox at UNC and was given a walk-on, like a, a guaranteed spot on the team, but no scholarship, just the opportunity to play one ACC Rookie of the Year twice my freshman year, and then earn myself a scholarship from there. So I've always had this, I need to outwork other people to kind of prove myself, and that has transitioned well to business. So things like having that competitive nature, how do you prepare? And that's one of the hats that I still wear in our company is, I still understand a lot of the technical components and being able to explain complex things in basic English has served me well. So the work behind that is you have to do the research. You have to understand. So that's going back to sports. That's your film study. It's helping other guys be successful. So I did a lot of that at Carolina, kind of in the hitting tunnel. I threw probably an extra 200 rounds a year of batting practice to guys, just helping them work on their game. Here's what I'm seeing. And, and kind of, again, going back to that team vibe, it wasn't just how am I doing as the third hitter in the order? It's, hey, so-and-so struggling this week. Can I help them figure it out? Can I get them a couple extra reps? So that has also transitioned to business. And at some point as the business has scaled, it's not just what I can do. It's how do I make the team more successful? So that's another valuable lesson to take in the business. Yeah, no, those are all incredible. And they, I'm sure they help you now running the company. Um, but there was there are a few things specifically that I want to touch on from that. One is starting out as a salesperson. So it's no different than you starting out at Charlotte Latin, working your way up, Earning a earning a spot on the roster and then getting a scholarship and all that. You learned your family business from the ground up. Like you said, it wasn't to where, okay, baseball didn't work out. Now your dad's going to hand you the company. No, you were a salesperson. You worked your way up and you had to earn that as well. That speaks numbers because someone from the outside might say, hey, he was entitled maybe right, or he just got spoon, this. Right? Yeah. right, right. But that wasn't the case. So that helps now running the company and you see someone come in and maybe they have a question and you can answer that because you've been, you've dug your nails into all of it. That's incredible to see. And then the, the other thing I think is preparation. So that's what doesn't get talked about a lot. So it's the behind the scenes stuff. It's like, what did you do to earn that spot at Chapel Hill? What did you do to earn the spot as a CEO or even just whatever position you may have? I mean, I think that speaks numbers for where you're at and where you'd want to be. So if someone walks in the door, you can give this guidance off, give this leadership off as the team. And it's not just you holding it in. I'm sure you share all that with everyone. And 
Yeah, I think that is still a missing trait today. And as and as someone who is very passionate about sales, because salespeople have you know kind of the the stigma in the market, right? Kind of the used uh, car salesman thing is still out there. Sales is ultimately about connecting people to a desired result with something that you can help them achieve. And I think too much of today's kind of like dialing for dollars or now today it's, well, you got to be selling, you got to be doing social selling to get your results. I think it's much more about, are you, are you truly actively listening to what the prospect is trying to achieve? And have you prepared enough to know this is how my solution has helped people achieve results. This is how my competitor positions their solution to try to help you achieve those same results. Here are some of the key differences and understanding deals that you have lost. And I think that's another missing component is kind of the where athletics comes in is you get that film study and athletics to say, well, why didn't we execute this play? Oh, so-and-so missed their block or, hey, you were way out on your front foot and couldn't hit that curveball. I think people that don't have that athletic background and are truly just relying on maybe what they learned in college haven't had the opportunity to fail and then reflect on why did I fail? And then this is how I've been able to correct those things going forward. So to me, that's a key part of preparation is this, this is how I know I have failed in the past. And let me implement a different strategy and a better way to listen versus just rinse and repeat. Cause that's yeah. what my manager tells me to make more phone calls. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that's really interesting too, because the failure component of it, you know, you obviously fail. Baseball is one of the main sports where you fail, right? Like, and then getting into sales, you fail a lot too. Yeah. You could have easily gotten into sales and just got heard no a bunch of times and just said, dad, I'm not doing this. I'm going to try to play baseball again, or I'm going to try something else. But that, that helps build, you know, your character, everything about who you are and who you're becoming. And, and it's, it's cool to see. You know, I want to get into some of some different types of questions just to yeah, dive man. deep into it. Fire away. Let's do it. All right. So at what point did you know it was time to transition out of your baseball career? I think it was at that moment in rehab that it's like, that is having gone through one season of that grind, am I motivated to go through that grind, not a hundred percent healthy with a very unlikely chance of success. Again, mentally going, I'm, I'm confident in myself. I can probably make it to double A. That's going to take me two or three years. If I put two or three years together that are good, or I'm in this business, I've found passion for sales. Like this has connected that competitive energy. I'm making a lot more money than I was so I just, I came to that realization to say, I really enjoy this. I want to follow this path versus there's some unknown and I, I've already got an issue that's going to make me less likely to be successful in a very difficult path forward, especially baseball, because there's so many levels, you know, the odds are slim to make it. So that's it. yeah. Growing up, who was your favorite baseball player? So I grew up a begrudging Cubs fan, I guess, because they were, you know, one of the few that were on. So Andre Dawson, the Hawk was a big, uh, of my favorite guys. That was the, you know, Ryan Sandberg, Mark Grace type days. So that, that was, you, you were kind of, I think back in our time, cause it was, you know, you had the Braves on TBS and the Cubs on WGN. I, you know, I enjoyed the Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin 
but I, I didn't really grow up a Braves fan. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say I was necessarily a Cubs fan, but if I was going to watch right. baseball, yeah. it was the Cubs. And, you know, I just, I always enjoyed yeah. those guys. There it is. So did you find yourself rooting for Andre Ethier as he was going through his career? Yeah. That was, I think that's one of my favorite takeaways from that whole sports connection is, and I would encourage people that are listening to this is you don't know the power of your network. So if you're an athlete, being able to connect with other athletes, like either before the game starts or, you know, baseball was one of those sports that had a lot of downtime or warm ups, like, and you're seeing people for five days in a row and you probably see them four or five times in a season. So I really enjoyed following a lot of the careers of people. So in college, I played against Chase Utley and a number of those guys. So it's, it's someone would ask me today, like, well, do you have a team that you follow? And I don't, I've, I've more followed players because it's now I have a personal connection. It's like, Oh, I remember playing against that guy in, you know, blah, 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 Oregon. Or I remember playing against that guy in college. So that has been the the neater thing. And I would imagine as you build those relationships and those people move on to either making it or not, like, I know that guy, like that's somebody I could call and say, Hey man, like I I saw you're, you're not playing with the Orioles anymore. What what are you getting into? So I think that's a neat fraternity, if you will, is, is, is that network. Yeah, that's really cool. What was your most memorable baseball game you've ever played in? Hope it's not the South Carolina game. No, 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 no. Most painful for sure. Uh, My favorite baseball memory of all time, and this is one of my better stories, is the regional we did win, which I was Coach Fox's first recruiting class. So it was my junior year, actually my senior year, when we won the regional, we were in Starkville, Mississippi. So we played at Mississippi State. That is probably the coolest place I've ever played. They had what was called, I played outfield. They had the left field lounge. So I think there was 17,000 people at this game, which coming from the ACC at that time in our old stadium, we could hold about 2,500. So to play in front of 17,000 people was cool. They had about 60 grills that line the outfield fence and they're cooking ribs and burgers and all kinds of stuff. And at the left field lounge, they have all these people would buy like plots out there. And there was like a school bus that was missing the roof. And that was the seats they were sitting in. There was like a, a truck that was backed in. And then they had like a very unique seating set up in the truck. So it was just such a cool, eclectic environment. And sure enough, my, my, my favorite story, Jonathan Papelbon was their closer at the time. And you know, you look at the chart on, and, and he had 18 saves, which in college was like ridiculous. Like no one would have double digit saves. So I was able to hit a home run off of him in kind of the, the key clinching thing, like two outs, top of the ninth, tied the ball game up. I mean, you've never heard, like we had 50 people there of 17,000 and that was just such a cool experience. And our next guy up hit what would have been a like game winning back to back home run and the center fielder robbed it over the fence. And then I was able to hit a double, you know, like in the 13th inning to win. So that went from having their fans heckle me in left field to like, our guy's not very good. Like, do you have any more eligibility left? You want to come play for us? So that was a neat experience. Uh, I've got some pictures of them handing me ribs at the end of the game. I was going to so, ask that. That's awesome. Um, so that was definitely my favorite wow. experience. Um, that's so, so cool. I, my joke is I've been waiting on like the Yankees to call me because I was the last guy to homer off yeah. Papelbon in college back, back when he was the <laughs> yeah, Red Sox closer. It's oh, like, uh, I'm here. I'm available. I know I'm how like to hit him. Pinch yeah. hitter, like 100 grand a game. I'll, I'll come out there and give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, give me something. That's incredible. Um, 
When was the moment you told yourself you need to make it happen and gave yourself no excuses? That's a tough question. I, I think I just live that way. I've, I've just had a competitive personality ever since the beginning. So I don't like to lose. So when, when, when you're kind of wired that way, it's not like I have to give myself a pep talk and say, you know, we're, we're, we're going to make it happen. It just, it happened. And if it wasn't happening, then it was, I'm going to go put in the extra work right. and I'm hitting in the cage in the winter when everybody, so just very much that montage of, um, and taking that to the business world, like, I'm going to, I'm going to make the phone call before my competitor does. I'm going to make five extra activities instead of my competitor. So I I can't say there's a specific moment, but just that's kind of an operating mantra. Yeah. I think this episode speaks to it because from the baseball career to the business world, it's always been working your way up, grinding through it, putting in the extra work. Like it doesn't just, there's sometimes isn't just that moment. It's just, you're living it and it, sees to where you're at and what you're doing now. So that's incredible. Well, that's all we got. I appreciate you coming on and it's awesome. Yeah, man. Thanks for the interview. Enjoyed it. One of my favorite things about our sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity for our team to chat with people like Sean Farrell. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at sportsepreneur. Thank you for listening to the Sports Epreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide.